sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show. The show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Hag. With me, of course, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? Hey. Hey. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. Yeah. How's it going, man? It's going well. All right. All right. Good. Good to hear. Uh, We got uh, people. uh, We're starting a half an hour early. Starting at 9.30 today, and uh, thank you to all the people in the chat room. We got somebody trying to log into the chat room. She's having trouble. She's over in um, over in Turkey right now, and uh, our wonderful people in the, uh, in, the, in, in the chat room are attempting to, um, attempting to help her uh, get this fixed, get it fixed. And so thank you to everyone in the chat room. Uh, and what up and shalom to y'all. You're doing great in there. Thank you so much. Our chat room is always awesome and we appreciate them. How you doing, man? How you doing, Rob? I'm just, I'm blown away that we've got, uh, you know, we know the Clarks of course are, what are you guys? Are you guys like 10 hours ahead? No, maybe eight hours ahead of us. Um, and now I imagine that Rika or, uh, she's even further ahead of the Clarks in terms of time. Yeah, that's uh, right. This is a live, uh, exciting, you know, to be. Uh, yeah, it's, she, said, she said it's six thirty p.m. where she's at. Wow, that's nine hour. Yeah, nine hour difference then. And it's five thirty two uh, over uh, over in, in England. We got people all over the world right now. Not only uh, not only in our <laughs> chat room, but listening listening live. Wow. And that's exciting to us. Thank you so much. Wow, that's really cool. It is really cool, and uh, you know, it's all made. Uh, any, it's all made possible, of course, by uh, Torah Resource. Torah, Torah Resource is the company that produces uh, this this podcast, the Robin Caleb Show, and that's the company that, uh, that that Rob and I work for. And we are eternally grateful to the Lord and to uh, to our supervisors, if you will, for allowing us to uh, to have fun doing this. It's a, it's a great time, and of course, we can't all, we cannot leave out the fact that uh, our main the main sponsor uh, obviously besides store resource of this show is yeshuashirts.com uh, they haven't given us a penny but uh, what they have done is they've sent us a lot of uh, clothing and we appreciate that we'll always take free clothes and uh, to show the appreciation of for the Robin Caleb show they've also set up a special code for any of our listeners just for listening to the Robin Caleb show you can get 10% off any product at yeshuashirts.com just go to yeshuashirts.com enter the product or the uh, coupon code rather tr radio all it doesn't matter it's not case sensitive tr radio into the coupon box at checkout and save yeah depending on where you are it'll cover your shipping it's like free shipping just for listening to this show all right uh you know i i, I do listen to a lot of podcasts and uh, i i enjoy listening to a lot of podcasts 
Uh, people might not know this about me, but I uh, I do have a second job. I, I I drive for Uber about twice, uh, two, about two hours a day, each day uh, in the morning, and I listen to a lot of podcasts while I'm uh, you know while I'm driving around. And uh, so uh, I've heard two podcasts that I listen to now say that they are the greatest podcast in the universe. Um, I would never be so arrogant or bold. If they if, do say so themselves. If they do say hey, so I think, themselves. I think we're the, wait, are we even a pod? We're not really a podcast. Well, we are, we started as a podcast. I mean, we are kind of a podcast, right? Can but, you, but go ahead. We're a podcast secondarily, right? I mean, cause this is what the live thing is really where we are. I think most people listen to us as a podcast. The fact that you can listen oh, okay. to us later or watch us later, a vodcast or a podcast anyway, um, yeah, the uh, I, I think that's that's probably, but anyway, what I was thinking is is that uh, you know I bet that there's at least seventy four, seventy three better podcasts than ours out there. So instead of saying that we're the the best podcast in the universe, I think that we should just claim that we are the seventy fourth greatest podcast in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's a good yeah. round number. I mean, th- th- there's another shirt idea for you. Uh, you know. The Robin Caleb Show, seventy fourth best podcast in the in the universe. <laughs> hey, wait, what's the gematria for seventy four? No, I'm playing. I'm playing. Okay, so hey, uh, you know, I'm sorry to uh, the people having trouble in the chat room uh, connecting. Uh, that that does. Uh, we'll try to get it uh, worked out at least. Hopefully, we can get it worked out this this uh, this show. I'm reading while I'm talking, which is never good. Uh, hopefully we can get it worked out this show. If we don't, then uh, hopefully next show we'll be able to get it worked out. And uh, and Gary will be back. Gary's uh, our programmer. He's uh, on a mini vacation down in Arizona uh, with his family. And so uh, if, if he was around, then I'm sure he would be able to help. But unfortunately, he's not around. So uh, go ahead and give the Torah Resource Radio line uh, a, a call and leave us a comment if you'd like to. The comment... Line is 253-465-3205. That's 253-465-3205. Okay. I should tell you this. Check this out. For those of you who have had a full access pass to the the radio station, uh, you can now, and I don't know, I, I don't even think Rob knows this. Now, you, you can go to TorahResource.com, okay, and all of the menu options have changed. And if you hover over library... You can go down to books and teachings now. And in the mm-hmm. books and teachings section, this is a whole brand new section. We're going to have the entire Torah resource catalog in digital format in there. And this is going to take the place of the full access pass. Very wow. excited. Yeah, very excited for that. So go check that out. Uh, you can get a subscription to be a library member for a hundred, uh, for, yeah, it's a hundred dollars a year, which rounds out to about $10 less then ten is about eight dollars a month to have access to the entire digital catalog of Torah Resource, and we're still building it, but it's uh, it's taking a lot of time. Anyway, okay. So what's been going on, man? I've been talking for seven minutes. How are you well, doing? Well, I, I I'm intrigued. This might be a segue for our show today. There's a new book out, Oxford University Press, mm-hmm. and you can Google it. It's by an author I've never read any of his stuff. Tom Nichols. It's called The Death of expertise the death of expertise 
And the subtitle is The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. And just let just humor me for a minute, indulge me, I should say. Okay. And I'll read this. Is, I'm just on the Amazon website sure. looking at, uh, uh, I, I might want to read this book. Uh, the, the plug goes like this. People are now exposed to more information than ever before, mm-hmm. provided both by technology and by increasing access to every level of education. These societal gains, however, have also helped fuel a surge in narcissistic and misguided intellectual egalitarianism that has crippled informed debates on any number of issues. Think theology, right? Uh, Today, everyone knows everything. With only a quick trip through WebMD or Wikipedia, average citizens believe themselves to be on an equal intellectual footing with doctors and diplomats. All voices, even the most ridiculous, demand to be taken with equal seriousness, and any claim to the contrary is dismissed as undemocratic elitism. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. It's um, basically uh, one of his biggest concerns is, let me do the look inside thing. There was one other line I thought that. Can you put the, uh, the chat room's asking for the name uh, typed in? Oh, it's the called chat. The Death of Expertise. Who's the author? Tom Nichols, N I C H O L S. Um, he says people, we've basically created a culture that people are, are proud of not knowing things. So, in other words, what is called true knowledge is now watered down. Knowledge means something different. If I can Google something really quick and uh, read, you know, someone's uh, Wikipedia uh, summary of a topic, all of a sudden I know something now and I can argue. But don't you feel like, okay, I I hate getting, I'm not in, uh, let's not go politics on this, but don't you think that the same thing is happening with with basically all of your media uh, news sources, bona fide media news sources? CNN is basically, you know, just the other day, I heard them say something. I knew it wasn't true. And then, you know, like 30 seconds later, they came back on and retracted it. It's like... The, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. It's whoever can say it fastest and first. It's like, let's not care if it's true. Let's just say it first. And then it, if it is true, great. It's the same kind of thing with the Hebrew roots and Messianic movement, right? Like, if you're a teacher and you can come out with the next greatest thing, okay... Right. Then, then, and, and you come out with it first. Then you get the book deal, or then you make the money doing it. Then you're on the then you're on the circuit. You know. So frustrating. It, it looks like an interesting book uh, on how do established bodies of knowledge survive and defend themselves in an in the information age when we have a gazillion, well, not a, you know, billions of websites. Um, and of course, even if you read one book a minute and could understand it every minute, your lifetime is not long enough to even scratch the surface of what's out there in terms of books. Same thing with websites. So the the conundrum is how do we know uh, we're dealing with limited resources, limited time. How do we know what, uh, resources to, to use and which to reject, and how do we develop that strength? How do we develop the discernment? Here's that key theme we keep coming back to. 
How do we develop uh, some healthy discernment so that when we come across a new piece of information or a new claim, that we can quickly uh, uh, either set it aside or say, you know, this is worth spending a, a few more minutes on at least. And that's a challenge for each one of us mm. when we're being bombarded with information. No doubt. But uh, it shows that why God set up that in in the ecclesia, he would he has a place for teachers, right? Teachers are not the be-all, end-all of the body of Messiah, but teachers are one of the uh, arenas of specialization that are, are uh, kind of built into the structure of of the church, if we're going to call it the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I got nothing else on that. The reason I thought this was a, a segue is because I know that we're going to talk about uh, an article. Yes. I think we're doing the, why Jews don't believe in Jesus today. Yeah, and one of the things what, what we have with this com- this uh, information age arena, we have different groups that are competing. Uh, to define terms, mm-hmm. right? We like, just like the term Messiah. We've talked about this before. You go to, if we time traveled back to the first century, and you just went around and asked different Jewish groups, you know, what what Messiah meant, you'd you'd have a whole number of of meanings, and that the same would be true today, um, except in the world we are in today, there would be you know marked uh, a number of people that would say, well, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. You know, they would, they're coming from that perspective. But if we go 2,000 years ago, um, you're not going to get that kind of clear demarcation. You're going to get what we have from the Second Temple period, which are different groups promoting their own spin on a, on a received sure. idea. Yeah. So there's a symbol called the Messiah, and then we have like Qumran. Well, what is the Messiah in Qumran? What was the Messiah for... Uh, you know, different groups, and you'll get the different kind of spins. Um, so what that means is, is we can't take a term for granted. We can't take the word Messiah for granted. We can't take, uh, particularly dealing with religious terminology, that's not like a, just a, a neutral meaning that just is a given, but rather we have to recognize that in this information age, the different groups with different uh, uh foundations are going to be uh, insisting on their own definition. Mm. We're going to be uh, teaching our definition of the word um, and defending our definition of the word um, in contrast to other groups that are trying to define the same term in different light. And that's what's clashing. It's not that there's just this word, the Messiah, on the shelf, and everybody knows what it means. So in, in the information age, you're going to have uh, an increase in that, what we call a polemic or um, uh, argumentation over what terms mean. And I think we're going to see that in our article today. Yeah, no doubt. Love it. Okay, good. I just figured I needed a, uh, I want to be able to write down time codes here. Okay. Um. So uh, let's let's segue in then to uh, some of the, the questions that we have received. Um, this is good because we've we okay we had one person ask 
two specific questions, and then somebody sent me an article, and, and the article is what uh, Rob is referencing. By the way, we should say the reason that we're uh, starting early today, for those who are just now starting to log in and whatnot, we, we started early because uh, Rob needed needs to leave uh, at a, a hard stop again, So, and which is just fine. That's the joy of being able to run our own show is that we can start and stop whenever we feel we want to. Um, okay. So... Uh, here at the 74th greatest podcast in the world. Okay. Um, let's see here. 16, 16. Okay. Here's a question from someone wrote in and said, why does Torah say Israel can't eat things that died of themselves, but they can give it to the alien resident within their gates to eat it. If it's one exact same Torah for all, this is a great question. This is something that I actually had a lot of trouble with. Uh, in my own walk, this is one of the things that I, you know, if, if we're all, you know, going to be under the covenant, what then? Uh, this is, uh, this uh, is specifically addressed in the first chapter of my father's book, uh, fellow heirs, which I would encourage everyone to, uh, to, to pick up and, and read. There's a digital format of it, which you can get on Torah resource, or you can buy the hard copy, which I always recommend because it's always nice to have a hard copy of a book. Anyway, not the point. Um, would you like to tackle that? This is more. This more uh, speaks to the the uh, Hebrew that's used. Uh, the word here that's used. I take it to mean that you can give it to someone who is not part of the covenant people of Israel, uh, someone who's passing through, and uh, not a member of the covenant. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, we have to hear again. We have we get to the idea of the ger. What is a ger? Yeah, in the scriptures, and it's clear that ger has a, a more than one meaning. And we like with all terminology, we have to look at context. Um, both we have both both are in the Torah. Both are true. I think one is in Deuteronomy. One is in Leviticus. And we have to we have to say, well, both of these are true. How can they both be true? And I think you just hit the nail on the head. One is in, in Leviticus. It's it just is clear. It's if an Israelite or a ger eats something trefa, they both uh, are uh, ritually, they're tameh. They're unclean until, and they have to bathe, and then they're unclean until evening. Yeah, exactly. It, that, that's a, it's, I mean, that's a no-brainer. So it tells us clearly in Leviticus, uh, and I'm hoping, I haven't looked at this for a while, I believe the Leviticus is where uh, the law says you're unclean till evening. The Deuteronomy passage and again, I might have these uh, swapped, uh, but the uh, the other one where it says you can give it to the gear or sell it um, is an act of mercy for other people who are hungry, who are outside the covenant community, and are not interested in uh, uh, their status with respect to worshiping God mm-hmm. uh, at the at the Mishkan at the tabernacle. So you give it to them, and they're they're. It's an act of mercy in that you're feeding a, a human, um, but, uh, but you're also acknowledging with that that they are—you're uh, not compelling them with uh, your—the idea that, okay, now you're unclean now, because if they're just passing through and they're, they're, they're not uh, there to, to worship, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my—, that's my uh, boiled down version. I think, I think in your dad's book, Fellow Heirs, he, he does a really good job with that uh, as well. Yeah, he talks about it for an entire chapter, and uh, there's absolutely no way. 
I mean, I, I know this is kind of a cop out, but there's absolutely no way that we're going to be able to uh, talk in a in a short five to ten minute segment uh, and give you the ins and outs of of the uh, of the various workings of the word gear, gear toshav. I mean, this is precisely why my father wrote uh, essentially a, an entire book on on this subject of of what is a stranger and and uh, is, was there such thing as a proselyte? Um, so. Uh, I strongly, strongly recommend my father's book, Fellow Heirs. And actually, the person who uh, who asked the question, I simply just sent them a free copy of the book um, because I thought it was such a good question. Okay, uh, the, the other question that this person wrote in was, uh, why wasn't Titus compelled to be circumcised? This is also an excellent question. Uh, seems like he set a bad example via Paul by not doing it if we are supposed to do it. And then uh, she, she, of course, is referencing Galatians 2, 3, and 4, which I put in your show notes. <clears throat> for those who would like to check it out. Uh, but I'll read it for you right now, too. Uh, but not even, this is NASB, by the way, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Messiah Yeshua, in order to bring us into bondage. Uh, I have very specific ideas about what I think this is uh, and what's going on here. Uh, I'll, I'll give my thoughts, and then uh, if you want to jump on the back of that, Rob, uh, that would be great. Um, oh, I, I think that uh, I think that we've talked before on this show about the word circumcised. Now, the the, um, the new perspective on Paul, which we could talk about briefly, uh, kind of touches on this. I believe that, uh, and the new perspective on Paul was that. Uh, uh, for those who might not know, and, and there's many different facets of the new perspective on Paul, E.P. Sanders, uh, N.T. Wright are some of the uh, scholars, uh, Jimmy Dunn, are some of the scholars who have kind of championed the idea of, of uh, uh, the new perspective on Paul. What the new perspective on Paul is, very quickly, and uh, just maybe some of the main tenets of the new perspective on Paul, is that uh, Paul was not fighting against salvation by works as his main thrust in things like Romans and whatnot, uh, because the Jews of the first century didn't necessarily believe that works saved you. Rather, uh, what the new perspective on Paul would say is that Paul was speaking against salvation by bloodline. Uh, that is, if you were born uh, as a physical descendant of Jacob, you were quote unquote in. And if you did not uh, and then there were things that you could do to, to uh, fall out of grace, obviously, with God. Uh, but you were you were born into salvation or whatever you'd want to say uh, through through bloodline. And then um, the Gentiles were not born into that. And if you were a Gentile who wanted to become Jewish, if if these are, I mean, I'm using very broad strokes here, but if you wanted to become part of of Israel, you had to go through a some form of a, a conversion process or ritual. And every group within the uh, within the first century, as we can tell, might have had either different forms of, of what this might have looked like. It probably wasn't all the same. And each group probably, just like today, didn't necessarily accept another group's, uh, you know, like for instance, the Qumran, the Qumran sect wouldn't accept the, the Sadducees' form of conversion into, uh, into their sect of Judaism. Instead, the Qumranis had their own process of, of converting, which was a two-year-long process, right? And so anyway, all this to say that uh, when, when we see the word circumcision in, uh, in the apostolic writings or in the New Testament, there are various meanings, just like the word ger in the Torah. 
And so uh, circumcision, the way that I see circumcision and the various meanings in the apostolic scriptures, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Rob, but uh, I see uh, one form to be the uh, the physical uh, uh, act of uh, cutting away the foreskin. Uh, I see another one, uh, another use of the word circumcision uh, as being the ritual conversion to a sect of Judaism within the first century. Um, and uh, I can give an example of this. Uh, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of the Lord or keeping the Torah. Uh, this is uh, obviously circumcision is a commandment of the Lord. So what's he talking about? Well, it seems as though he might be talking about a conversion process. So what I see here in Galatians 2, 3 through 4 is that uh, mm-hmm. Titus was not compelled to go through a ritual of conversion to be accepted by the Jews. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that he wasn't circumcised. I, I see it as though, uh, but Timothy, however, was, right? Uh, Paul, it seems as though Paul had him circumcised so that uh, Timothy would be accepted within the, within the uh, synagogue, which I take to mean that he went through the actual ritual that was prescribed by a specific sect. What do you think, Rob? Uh, I look at it maybe a little differently. Okay. Um, with Acts 16, I was talking about Timothy. It just says plainly that that uh, Paul circumcised Timothy and uses the aorist voice of uh, aorist tense form in Greek. It's just, I think it's just Paul's the subject. We have the verb and Timothy's the object. Okay. Um, and it's the same the same kind of construction that uh, is used earlier um, in Acts, it, that when P, or when Luke is describing um, in chapter 7, when, Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, he says, you know, Abraham circumcised Isaac and Isaac his 12 sons. So the idea is that the you have the, ma- uh, the father uh, circumcising the son. The, the sons in in Luke, and perhaps or in, so, in Acts in, so, in Acts and, and so wait can, um, wait so so then are you are you suggesting then um, and maybe you're about to answer this are you suggesting then that maybe it was as if Paul was the teacher of Timothy and therefore it was laid upon him to circumcise him as a Gentile yeah I coming think, into I covenant. think what yeah and we have to remember this is before. Uh, Jewishness at this time was not ideologically defined as having a Jewish mother. That yes. had, that wasn't, uh, and so... In fact, it, from uh, so what we can tell, it, it goes through father's line, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just, right, yeah. So there is a way where, where Paul is kind of becoming Timothy's spiritual father at this point. And now we know that in his epistles to Timothy, he says, you know the scriptures from youth, right? And even his, I think it says his grandmother even... Uh, he he knew, but he didn't have that father figure. Um, uh, apparently, we, we just don't know, you know. Then so Paul came and, um, but uh, but get back to Galatians. What we're told is that Titus was not compelled mm. to be circumcised, mm-hmm. and I think we need to look at how Paul uses also in Galatians this compelled. The idea is it's an external. Uh, intimidation kind of uh, uh, imposition on a person, that unless you do this, you are not socially acceptable here. And then because out of the threat of being excluded, um, 
<laughs> I'm talking to, this happens all the time. I'm talking to someone and then they get up and leave. <laughs> Apparently, hopefully everything's okay, but uh, obviously Caleb had to step out there for a second. <laughs> I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Um, in, in any event, um, that what what I take away from Galatians 2 is that, is that Paul is, is saying, look, we're letting the terms of the new covenant bear fruit here, which is the God's writing his law on the hearts of, of his people, and they respond with a desire to obey. A desire, the cry of the heart is Abba, Father, right? A desire to hear his word and to do his word, mm-hmm. not just to be a hearer only, and to hear it in all its fullness. And of course, Paul's big argument is the fullness of the Torah, and this is true in Galatians and in Romans, um, no matter what different Jewish sectarian groups are promoting in the late Second Temple period, unless they have Yeshua, they are they have an a, a representation of Torah that falls short. That falls short of the the fullness of of what it is uh, in reality, and so Messiah uh, Yeshua is the centric is the central. Uh, uh, focus mm-hmm. uh, that that properly uh, frames our understanding of of what the covenant with Abraham is all what creation is all about the uh, the sin creeping into the creation the call of Abraham uh, and then of course the, the the Torah given at Mount Sinai Paul's given us this chronology and under trying to use the Torah itself as the template for understanding what is justification. Okay, Abraham, he had, he says he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was still as yet physically uncircumcised, mm-hmm. but he was recognized as righteous. So Paul is saying the precedent in the Torah itself is that there's a place where a person is righteous and has nothing to do with their uh, foreskin. Now, uh, but Paul does, and he doesn't do this in Romans, but he does it in, or he doesn't do it in Galatians, but he does it in Romans. He clarifies what circumcision means, um, because if you were to read uh, other uh, Second Temple Jewish thought mm-hmm. on circumcision, for example, and you could find this online, read Philo of Alexandria in the Special Laws. He and he's before Paul, right? And he's writing in Greek. He he. Uh, interprets circumcision as this philosophical kind of uh, thing, and and it's uh, other nations do it. It's it, he's not anchoring it in covenant with Abraham. He, it's become this philosophical kind of meaning of of putting away of of uh, intellectual ignorance and seeking true wisdom. It's in this fluffy knowledge like that. And on the at the on the other hand, we have during the Maccabean era mass forced circumcision. And again, mm-hmm. when, when, when Josephus describes it, he uses the same word, compelled, force, is what some of the early Maccabean uh, kings did when they expanded their territory. So they wanted to go into uh, what we call Idumea or Edom. They expanded their nation, nation's borders. They uh, expanded in there with military power, and they forced circumcise all the males and say, you are now Judeans. They did that in a few different places. So by the time we get to the first century, the idea of circumcision 
is very complex. It has multiple meanings depending on which place in society you would go. And what Paul wants to do is, is to say, look, we, we have to understand circumcision from the perspective of the Torah and its relationship with righteousness, uh, 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 where righteousness comes from, finding righteousness in God's eyes, and that is, righteousness which is of God, dikaiosune tu theu, as he writes, the righteousness which is from God, um, and how this all fits together. And so Paul is trying to hold a space for the gospel to go out and do its work, rather than have these competing sects that are out there trying to force people, saying, look, unless you do it our way, you're never going to be one of us. Because that's where the fear of man comes in. Oh, if I, I if if I'm if I if someone threatens me, you know, you're never we're never going to let you in unless you do X, Y, and Z. Then uh, the fear of man is going to say, oh, well, okay, I'll do it. I just want to be acceptable to you guys. And and, he, and Paul's trying to say, look, you can't respond that way in the world. I think that you and I are essentially saying the same thing on that. Then, I mean, granted, your take on on uh, on Timothy being circumcised. Yes, uh, I, I agree. Your, your, your reading is probably more uh, uh, honest to simply what the text says. In other words, if we're just looking at what the text says, your reading of that is probably uh, a lot more honest. But I think when we, when we uh, look at uh, uh, Titus being circumcised, I think that you and I are essentially saying the same thing. Right? Yeah, or, am I, yeah. or am I missing it? There's actually an early—in the early Church Fathers, there's a tradition that Titus was, in fact, physically circumcised. Yeah, well, that doesn't— yeah. And if that's the case, then, then when we read Timothy, 1st, 2nd Timothy, we read Titus, we realize that Paul's writing to, you know, a person who is, you know, reckoned physically in Paul's eyes as being part of the Abrahamic covenant and also having that mark in their flesh. Um, yeah. But Paul is not Paul. And we know this from Acts 15. There was no <laughs> there, there was never a mandate to go out and enforce circumcision among disciples of Yeshua, because that enforcement, this, it is necessary, this is what the Pharisees said in Acts 15.5, it is necessary for us to circum, to be circumcising them. So now all of a sudden you're creating a, uh, an agency in the body of Messiah to go around, and this is our task. Well, we are here to, you know, and, and it says the Holy Spirit did not agree with that, that interpretation. Yeah, I'm with you. You've got to let, the, the terms of the New Covenant are... Uh, that God does the work now, but that doesn't mean that it's that it's off the table. It mm. just means that it has to be uh, in its appropriate time and place, and that's why Acts 15 ends. Let them go to the synagogues. Yeah, they'll learn in Let the synagogues. Be, yeah, they'll exactly. become. They will learn the Torah. They will learn God's word. Yeah. The assumption we have to remember that the assumption is that whether you know Jew or particularly even the Gentiles, mm -hmm. Paul's saying, look, if you have the Spirit of Messiah in you. That's that's the cry out, Abba Father. Yeah. Right. What what is the what what is Abba Father? If that's truly the new heart that is in a believer, then your the next step is to say, I want to learn your word. Right. What does your word say? It says, I belong in your family. The scriptures are now my inheritance too. Right. I'm part of this. That's what Paul's saying. You're part of this. If you believe, you're part of this. Don't let this other group, this branch over here, yeah. Don't let them you say no. you're not. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're going to tell you, and that's what Paul's saying. There, you're going to have these other branches. They're going to be telling you you don't belong yet. It's going and on still to this day. Exactly. 
and we're going to see that we're going to see this in our uh, article too. I think when we get there. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, uh, we'll say thirty-five. Sorry, I'm trying something new here. I know this is probably annoying to everyone. Okay, so I was sent uh, an article by a very close relative of mine. Um, and so I don't even really know how to intro this. She she just said, uh, uh, somebody sent me this. What do you think of this? Uh, can you help me at all with this? And uh, I took a look at it. It's by H.com. Um and so H.com is a is a uh, a, a Jewish a non-believing Jewish website. Uh, they have quite a large website, as a matter of uh, fact, and uh, a lot of various resources on it. Uh, this specific article is the only uh, link that you have in your show notes today. Uh, show notes for uh, show one fifty nine. Uh, the title of the article is "Why Jews Don't Believe in Jesus." Uh, for 2,000 years, Jews have rejected the Christian idea of Jesus as Messiah. Why? First of all, I completely disagree and reject the uh, even the premise or title of the paper. Um, this is by somebody named Rabbi Shraga Simons. Um, Shraga, yeah. The uh, the idea that Jews haven't believed in Jesus is is simply not true. The disciples were now, Jewish. This was uh, one before you before we get into that. There was someone who caught, who sent us a note, which I appreciated, uh, saying, "Hey, um, it would be great if you guys talked about some rabbinic stuff." Yes, you know, because you know, you, rabbinic theology. As a matter of fact, the, this listener used the word rabbinic or Jewish theology. And so before we dive in, I just thought it'd be worth the thank you for the email, first of all. I, yes. I think it was great. And that that was one of the factors that went into our show topic today. But also be careful because properly there is no category theology in class in the classical rabbinic worldview. It's, sure. it's a theology would be a first of all, it's a Greek, right? Theologos is a the, theologia would be a Greek concept. Just like orthodoxia is <laughs> orthodox is, although that that has been adopted by English-speaking Jews, of sure. course, for uh, marking halakhic stringency. But um, but yeah, uh, so theology is well, theology is not properly a Jewish category until the 20th century, or uh, even you know. Okay, but at the same time, uh, now the the email that you're referencing. Is, is a little bit different. And the reason why is because they said, uh, and you can correct me uh, if you want to read the actual email, but basically this person said, you, you seem to lean much more Christian, perhaps, you know, in your theology, perhaps for good reason, uh, but you don't seem to talk about Jewish theology very much. Would you, you know, is there, could you touch on Jewish theology at some point? Now, th- this is difficult um, because there's so many different ways. Now, we have talked about various theologies within Judaism before. In fact, we have, uh, Rob and I have talked for about the past three weeks, somebody sent us something they want us to respond to, uh, but but it's a very touchy subject, and it's uh, and it's something that we need to be very careful with, just so that we don't misrepresent uh, anybody, because it's it's important that we uh, that we uh, are fair with what the person is saying and not trying to overemphasize what they're saying. So we've we've been talking about how to to touch on on this one specific uh, theology. Um, when it comes to Jewish theology, though. Uh, this is what I what we're about to uh, read is going to be very, very uh, rabbinics one hundred and one. Uh, this isn't even I, I I don't even think this is necessarily rabbinics. I would say this is more a response to or perhaps 
ammunition for your average uh, uh, Jewish person who might be uh, dealing, you know, a a religiously Jewish person who might be dealing with missionaries or might be dealing with Christian friends uh, at their workplace or something like that. This is not deeply theological. In fact, uh, there are just a lot of straw men that are that are built up with this. When it comes to when it comes to Jewish theology. Uh, if you have something specific that you'd like us to talk to, then by all means, we'd be happy to. We have talked about things uh, about Jewish theology. We've talked about Kabbalah before. We've talked about Jewish mysticism. We've talked about the rise and fall, or, well, not fall, but the rise of the Hasidic movement, uh, and then it's splitting into its various factions, now having over 49 uh, various Hasidic groups in the world today, so on and no, so forth. No, there are only 49. There can't be any more because okay, it's seven. Yes. Yes, of course. Um, so it's like there can only be seventy nations that are against Israel in Paris. There can't be sixty-nine or seventy-one. Sorry, I'm a Catholic, which is the best of all the religions, really, because we have the most rules and the best clothes. So the point is, is that if so, you but wait back to back to the article. Well, Back okay, yeah, but, but, but before we start the article, I just want to uh, f- sum this up by saying if you have something specific within Jewish theology, we would be happy to talk about it, but there, but it's such a broad statement, it's hard to just focus on one specific thing. So, okay, go. let's, let's look at this. Let's look at this I article. Like, yeah, back to the title is Why Jews Don't Believe in Jesus. It I, I like you right off the bat, Caleb, you said, well, it's historically inaccurate <laughs> title, right? Yeah. I mean, what does it lead— it leads, uh, and again, what we're talking about is the power of an institution to set its own agenda and to define the terms. So if, if someone comes to com with a naive um, uh, kind of mindset and just sure. says, oh, they're going to just tell me like it is, then, then they are going to be uh, basically being informed with uh, a whole bunch of, of uh, categories that um, have a much, much more complex and larger historical framework that in our view at Torah Resource, we believe that understanding that framework and the larger context is super, super critical. And so, um, but what we see here is, a, is an institution that has a lot of money. They have a big uh, uh, place right by the Western Wall, the way I understand it. Yes, I've I've actually studied at uh, Asia Torah so at the wall before. Uh, we're talking for, for about, about a month you know, and a half. Very yeah. well financed. Um, their, their their facilities are absolutely gorgeous, but issue. but and they're they're all over the world too. So when when they when you see Aish dot com, uh, I think that uh, people are going to say this is you know this is a standard. This is a standard organization within. And, it's a and go-to well, place. It's a go-to place by, and by it's a Jews go-to. Pl- I remember back uh, when I first came to Messi in like the early 2000s. I remember people coming to Shabbat and they would have printed out articles from H.com, you know, yeah. that, that, that pertaining to the Torah portion. I mean, so it's been a voice that has been on my radar for, you know, the last 17 years, probably at least, or 16 or 17 years, maybe, maybe, maybe 15 years. I don't know. But it's, it says. Event, it says it's it says here that uh, that this article this specific article has been shared fifteen point three thousand times on Facebook. Uh, wow! I mean, so that gives you a, a little bit of an idea of back of, to that information. Back yeah, exactly. That, uh, that book we were talking about, you know, um, that information age problem. But but the but the nope. idea but the idea that that Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah is simply not true. We have many many Jews within well, the. But he's doing. But but this is what he's accomplishing. If you if why Jews don't believe in Jesus, the implication is that 
those are two that are mutually exclusive categories. That if you're a true Jew, what do you do? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're In right. other words, and here, here's a board. Now, now we have a filter for their border. If I wanted to be part of the Aish community, let's say, oh, I want to, I, I really like their their articles. They seem to really. Uh, uh, teach a lot of truths that are in the scripture that I don't get from Christian theologians, and I think that they have the truth, and I think they're authoritative, and I want to be part of them, pretty soon you're going to hit this wall. And the wall is going to say, if you want to come any closer into our inner circle, you can't bring the gospel with you. Right? That, yes. That's what this title is yes. saying, is that we, we, our inner circle, are true Jews— and Jesus has no place here. That's that's what's said before we even read the article. That's what the title is conveying. Yeah. So I, let's let's dive in a little bit because I want to get to this before um, before you know our time's up here. Um, so uh, he has a, a short little in, intro, um, and you know it's your your basic things. Jews do not accept Jesus as the Messiah because, and he lists four main things. Jesus did not fulfill the Messianic prophecies. That's number one. Number two is Jesus did not embody the personal qualifications of the Messiah. Number three is biblical verses referring to Jesus are uh, mistranslations. We've talked about this when we uh, talked about anti-missionaries in one of our shows, which I actually thought was a a really fun show to do. Maybe we should do it again um, with some other other topics uh, that could be addressed. But uh, I looked at what their what their what verses they say are mistranslated, I disagree. Uh, number four, Jewish belief is based on national revelation. Uh, and I certainly uh, disagree with their, their stance on this. Anyway, um, so let's just go to number one, and we can talk about this. This is, uh, in my opinion, this is, they start with a, a huge, this rabbi starts with a huge straw man argument. He says, and I will read this in full, and then we can respond to it. He says, number one, Jesus did not fulfill the Messianic prophecies. What is the Messiah supposed to accomplish? One of the central themes of biblical prophecy is the promise of a future age of perfection, characterized by universal peace and recognition of God. And then he lists a significant amount of biblical passages within the Tanakh. Specifically, the Bible says he will, A, build the third temple, B, gather all Jews back to the land of Israel, C, usher in an era of world peace and and end all hatred, oppression, suffering, and disease. As it says, nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall man learn war anymore. And D, spread universal knowledge of God of Israel, which will unite humanity as one. As it says, God will be king. Uh, and he quotes Zechariah 14.9. Okay, he goes on. If an individual fails to fulfill even one of these conditions, then he cannot be the Messiah. Because no one has ever fulfilled the Bible's description of this future king, Jews still await the coming of the Messiah. All past Messianic claimants, including Jesus of Nazareth, Bar Kokhba, and Shabbatai Zavi, have been rejected. This is interesting, his list here. His list specifically is interesting. We'll talk about that in a few seconds. He has one more paragraph. Christians counter that Jesus will fulfill these in the second coming. Jewish sources show that the Messiah will fulfill the prophecies outright. In the Bible, no concept of a second coming exists. First of all, this is a complete straw man argument. Uh, and, And not only that, but it's not honest, because even the rabbis... If you look at rabbinic literature, they talk about the Messiah ben David and the Messiah ben Yosef. They thought that there was going to be either two comings or there was going to be two messiahs. And we see this also in the Qumran literature, right? Um, the Qumran literature specifically talks about 
uh, to uh, the possibility of two messiahs. But here, here's more. Here's more. Here's more to it. That's that's. Uh, so oh, there's a ton of this more. Is, to this it, is yeah. why. Uh, this is why the Jews rejected Jesus because he did not fulfill the messianic prophecies. Well, if you look, build the third temple, well, in the first century, there was the temple was standing. Yeah. So how could that have been a criteria? Right. It, it there's these what, these imply a person who's from a di- they've distanced themselves from the whole scenario and are evaluating on new uh, according to new uh, criteria and then making a judgment um, from a distance. That's even worse that, than that. that but it, w- w- would would this rabbi say that uh, no Jew- no? In other words, no ancient Jews made this argument. Yeah, of course. <laughs> no, no ancient Jews that did not believe in Yeshua list any of these things as the reason why uh, he, uh, to, to answer the cha- to answer the chat room uh, this rabbi uh, cites Ezekiel 37 26 through 28 which is the th- the building of the third temple uh, as as the Messiah will will build the third temple we see that the prince reigning in the third temple right whether or not he'll build it or not I think that's debatable the other thing that he that he doesn't that he's not being honest about this this writer is not being honest about is would this? What do you think? Do you think that this writer would say that no Jew believes, no Jew believes, or uh, traditionally Jews have not believed that Rabbi Menachem Schneerson is the is the Messiah? Yeah, he doesn't even mention. <laughs> and this is what's interesting about that, yeah, his, how come none of these how his, come none of these things uh, prevented uh, post death belief? And why did they put up the ad? That he was going to resurrect, you know, in the New York Times. Yeah, for those who don't know what we're talking about, uh, uh, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson was the was prophesied by the first uh, Rebbe of the Chabad movement. Uh, that it was prophesied that what the sixth or the seventh Rebbe of that uh, of that movement would be the Messiah. That Rebbe was uh, Menachem Schneerson. Menachem Schneerson died in 1996. I was there in '99. There was still. Uh, uh, posters and billboards and stickers everywhere with Menachem Schneerson's face that said uh, uh, Mashiach Huchaba, uh, Mashiach he is coming, um, and and things like this. The the Chabad sect... King Messiah, yeah. In Israel, there's like uh, stickers on like streetlights, uh, posts and stuff like that. To the saying Messiah, King of Israel. To this day. To this day, and uh, many people know, uh, there are some famous uh, Chabad people in the world today. Uh, Madis Yahu, who is who has rejected uh, Judaism now, I believe, but uh, he was part of the Chabad movement. So uh, th- that's probably where you would know the Chabad movement the most from for those who aren't in the Jewish world. But uh, the Chabad is the is one of the largest uh, uh, e- evangelical in inter- not evangelical, but they e- try to evangelize to Judaism as opposed to Christianity. Anyway, the point is, is that they still say that Menachem Schneerson is the Messiah, but that he will be the first to rise from the dead. And that's when he will fulfill all these things. So this rabbi is not being uh, honest about Jews and, and the idea of a second coming or that, uh, that the Messiah can fulfill things in a second coming. Uh, it's just simply not true. And I think what he's doing is he's preying on people's ignorance of these facts uh, to be able to make his point. Should we go on, or do you want to address this more, Rob? No, that's good. Okay, let's go on. His second point, Jesus did not embody the personal qualifications 
of the Messiah. Um, and uh, I'm not going to read this whole thing. This is, uh, this is quite large. But uh, he says uh, some of the things within here, A, uh, Messiah is prophet. He says that the, the Messiah wasn't a prophet. And he says, uh, actually, I should read this part because this is, I've never even heard this argument before. This is interesting. He says, the Messiah will become the greatest prophet in history, second only to Moses. Uh, this is untrue. Moses says, there will be one who even greater than I, right? There's, yeah. one, there's one coming greater than I, right? So anyway, uh, and we believe this to be the Messiah, of course, and uh, Yeshua, the Messiah. He says, prophecy can only exist in Israel when the land is inhabited by a majority of world Jewry, a situation which has not existed since 300 BCE. Where is he getting this from? He doesn't cite anything. He just says it. He says, then that, uh, he says, during the time of Ezra, when the majority of Jews remained in Babylon, prophecy ended upon the death of the last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Jesus appeared on the scene approximately 350 years after prophecy had ended and thus could not be a prophet. I, I strongly disagree with this. And by the way, Yeshua, this is, uh, uh, granted, Yeshua's uh, physical human body form came on the scene in, uh, you know, in right around zero or whatever you want to say, um, 3 AD, whatever. But uh, CE is maybe a better way to, to put that. But we certainly see Yeshua showing up in, in, uh, in uh, different form before that time. Um, anyway, he also says uh, he wasn't a descendant of David. Um, do you want to go back to? Uh, I, I want I want you to be able to, to uh, comment on this if you'd like to. Do you want to uh, comment on this on his first point here that the Messiah, as a on uh, as a prophet, anything to say about that? That he did or? not fulfill. That he did not. Fulfill. Well, that he couldn't be a prophet because, I mean, this oh, this oh because is, of the time frame. Yeah, this yeah. is just such an absurd. It's, well, that well, what we're doing here, he's he's again. If you go back to the first century, you know, Yohanan uh, Hamadbil, John the Baptist, was a, was a prophet. Yeshua called him a prophet. So uh, this is saying that Yeshua was a liar. Yeah. Yeah, and that the Gospels are false, are, are all based upon a lie, that there were there was such thing as, a pro, as prophets in the first century. Um, and so... Well, there was others there, too, there, right? Yochanan uh, uh, Hamakbil was not the only uh, prophet that arose uh, during that right. time. In fact, there were other prophets, uh, and we have this from uh, Josephus, uh, that uh, there were two main prophets, which are cited also in Acts, which is interesting. There was the Egyptian who was a prophet. He went out, according to Josephus, he went out into the uh, desert with about uh, 3,000 people, and the Roman government got wind of it and thought that it was a rebellion that was rising, so they went out and killed all of them. And then there was another uh, another uh, prophet, uh, I think his name was Joshua. Anyway, uh, he went out with 5,000, and once again, the Roman government thought that, that he was uh, creating an uprising. They went out into the wilderness, and uh, and the Roman government went and, and killed them as well. Um, so... But but here here here's the other side to this is notice they quote Maimonides, right? Well, why is he quoting Maimonides? I don't see the quote from Maimonides. I'm sorry. Oh, this is under a Messiah as prophet. Yeah, I don't see the quote. He quotes Targum Maimonides to Shua. Oh, I see. Well, he references it. Yeah, he's okay. Quoting, he's referencing Maimonides in his article because Maimonides is is an, a halakhic authority. 
defining orthodox what today pardon me what today we'll say is orthodox perspective um well why it, it is the view that prophecy ceased is, uh, is coming from the worldview that is a two torah um worldview that is that there are two torahs at mount sinai one uh, oral and one written and that with the the ceasing of the prophets uh, prophets here is the rise of the rabbinic authority or the yeah. the the establishment of the sanhedrin yeah good point and the uh, ongoing oral tradition that goes all the way back to moses of articulating the oral law um and so he, this author because he's a rabbi an orthodox rabbi he's he assumes this that's a presumption he comes to talking about this topic with is that the oral Torah of the rabbis goes back to Moses and is its own revelation. Um, and so that's where he gets this uh, idea that he can quote Maimonides and then he can say that prophecy uh, ceased. So again, what we see is in, in, in this information age where there's, we're all flooded with with claims to knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, competing claims, we uh, you have an, uh, an institution like Aish who's going to be selling their own definitions and then weaving those definitions into their articles in hope that the reader's just going to take it for granted. Oh, like prophecy can only exist, dot, dot, dot. Oh, okay. So your naive reader, again, is going to take this as a rule. The, the discerning reader is going to say, wait a minute, do I accept that claim? You know, do I am I just going to take this guy's word for it, or does he maybe have a, a an agenda that is um, providing, you know, and th- that his writing reflects the bias of of that agenda, and uh, at least you know at Torah Resource we we're not saying we don't have a bias, we're not saying we don't have an agenda. We just try to say here's our here, here it, it is, is. Right? yeah, that's exactly here it right. is, yeah. Um, but we're certainly not afraid of of talking about history. Um, at all. So, okay, let's keep going. He says uh, in B here, and you know, uh, once again, uh, the chat room, obviously a lot of people in the chat room are, are very well versed in their theology and probably a lot of people watching this later on YouTube or on Vimeo or listening on iTunes or something like that. You're probably, uh, there's a lot of people who are probably quite well versed in these things. And so this is, this is a, a somewhat of review for you. Uh, you probably have just as good of comments, if not better comments than we might have on some of these things as well, especially those who are, um, you know, we have some friends who are, are uh, boots on the ground in the thick of, oh, yeah. of, of yeah, trying yeah, exactly. to evangelize some of the uh, some of the uh, the Hasidic Jews in New York and, and so forth. Um, so this this show and, and uh, touching on this article every once in a while, <clears throat> pardon me, every once in a while, it is very good for us to go back to break down and discuss some of the some of the uh, uh, basic uh, fundamentals of, of our arguments and our faith in order to remember and have them fresh in our minds, but also so that people who are new to these kind of things will have a better idea of where we're coming from and good arguments to be able to uh, to be able to use uh, in, in defense of their faith. So, uh, descendant of David, this is interesting too because I think that he's being a very un, not 
honest with the inf- with the truth of the information. Uh, he says, uh, descendant from David, many prophetic passages speak of a descendant descendant of King David who will rule Israel during the age of perfection. He gives quite a few references here, and he's correct. I, I completely agree. The Messiah must be descended on his father's side from King David. And this is interesting because this rabbi is now agreeing that uh, the, the line came through the father, not through the mother in the first century, which I agree with as well. Um, and he gives references again. According to the Christian claim that Jesus was the product of a virgin birth, he had no father and thus could not have possibly fulfilled the messianic requirements of being descended on his father's side from King David. This is simply not true, and it is also a straw man argument. And the reason why is because uh, Yeshua was seen as being uh, raised by Joseph and in his father's household. Whether or not you uh, uh, want to admit it or not, a person who was either adopted or was raised in a household was taken in and seen as part of that tribe. That's all there is to it. The fact that uh, that uh, Yeshua went up with his father and mother for the census and the fact that, they, that he went up with them each year. Circumcision. Uh, circumcision, Passover. He was seen as the son of, of Joseph and therefore as descending fr- from the kingly line. That's all there is to it. And he was reckoned in Bethlehem, uh, according to the census. That's right, as as Joseph said. Yeah, it's yeah, that's another. Well, and then the comment about demigod. demigod uh, yeah, so I'll go. I'll go on and read this. He says, according to Jewish sources, and notice here, according to Jewish sources. So obviously, there's bias there. The Messiah will be born of human parents and possess normal physical attributes like other people. He will not be a demigod, nor will he possess supernatural qualities. I would strongly disagree with this. If you look at the uh, Qumran writings as well as some of the other uh, uh, first century writings of, of and before and prior of of uh, Jewish Jewish works, it does seem as though some thought that he would either be some kind of divine being, angel of the Lord, something like that. Uh, I think that there's plenty of reference to it. And this can all be found in my father's book on Christology, by the way, for those who are interested. Shall Again, we... and these are all uh, these are all manufactured, like I like how you call it a straw man, from a person that already has their mind made up. In other words, I've already rejected it, this claim that Jesus is, uh, is the Messiah. Um, and so now let let's me build the argument. Of, yeah, now I'm just going to kind of build some some straw man arguments to put them up there uh, because some people are going to chew on it like it's food. Well, we, right? see, we people we are going to take this and go, oh, well, this is true. This rabbi said this. So we see the same thing happening in Christianity. So, for instance, uh, you know, I'm. I, I think everyone who listens to this show on a regular basis now knows that I'm writing my thesis on on the Last Supper. Every single Christian scholar that I have uh, have have read now believes that Yeshua or Jesus instituted something new, and that is the Lord's Supper. So even the even the uh, scholars who are saying uh, we need to look at this from a Jewish perspective, so on and so forth, uh, what would the Jewish person in the first century think? They get up to one point, and then as soon as Jesus says, you know, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me, they say, oh, well, uh, obviously uh, he's, ref- he's, he's instituting something completely new and uh, everybody knew it. Well, no, the reason that the scholars are saying that is because that's what they believe. There's no proof of that whatsoever. Uh, anyway, uh, so it, it's, it's not just this rabbi. It's not, you know, it's not just, uh, we see it on all sides of the fence. Let's keep going. Torah observance, and this is a good one. Uh, He says, uh, the Messiah will lead the Jewish people to full Torah observance. Amen. Baruch Hashem. 
The Torah states that all mitzvot remain, and mitzvot, uh, for those who might not know, means commandments. Uh, the Torah states that all mitzvot remain binding forever, and anyone coming to change the Torah is immediately identified as a false prophet. I actually completely agree with this. He, re- he, uh, he references Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. Throughout the Christian New Testament, Jesus contradicts the Torah and states that its commandments are no longer applicable. Uh, no, he says exactly the opposite. Matthew five seventeen. This is this is like. Well, yeah. you can tell he hasn't he hasn't really uh, studied Luke sixteen fourteen is another place where Yeshua says that the Torah is uh, around forever, and this is the basis of one Torah theology, which Rob and I ascribe uh, to, is that uh, Yeshua did not contradict or, or go against the Torah. Uh, okay, so he goes on. For example, John 19, uh, 9, 14 records that Yeshua made a, pay, a paste in violation of Shabbat. That's not true. Which caused the Pharisees to say in verse 16, he does not observe Shabbat. But uh, once again, this uh, this does not go against uh, the... I, I like that he kind of <laughs> he kind of quotes it, which shows that he's he's... He's read something. <laughs> he's read some of the gospel, even he, though he's he he's probably found it on Wiki- it. he probably found it on Wikipedia. <laughs> he's reframing it. So the idea is: did did Yeshua break the Shabbat? That's the issue. He's saying yes. You know, obviously, what Yeshua broke were the Pharisaic uh, uh, added laws and expectations. Uh, concerning the Shabbat. Well, if you can crawl into a pit and pull your donkey out of it on the Shabbat, how much more can you bend down, make some mud, and put it on a blind man's eyes to make him see again? Right? The idea that... The idea that Yeshua was breaking the Shabbat by giving somebody sight is... I I just don't think you can uphold that, according to... We, We see the same thing in John 5, where there was the man, right? He tells him, get up and walk. And yeah, it was he, pick, on Shabbat. And, he and, picks up and his bed. Caught. Yeah, he yeah. picks up his bed. They freak so, out about that too. Uh, they jump on that, and yep. they're saying you're uh, what you're doing. What is uh, not existent? It says in Greek, which is not lawful. It's not the word law in there, um, but it it pertains to the their uh, added um, kind of societal expectations, like these these kind of extra rules. Um, and then they're condemning somebody for it, but they don't even know the context. You know, they don't even bother understanding the whole story. Um, so they're going right to, to making a judgment, a legal uh, condemnation, rather than seeing the context of the mercy behind it, which is the healing. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm reading some of the comments in here. Um, yeah, so uh, in terms of the, the Last Supper, and, and uh, there, there's a different conversation going on in the chat room right now, but uh, just quickly, we do a, a, a Passover special every year. Uh, this year it's going to be a little bit different, and I'm, I'm actually excited for it because obviously since my, uh, since my thesis is on the Last Supper, I've had to do a lot of studying uh, in, the, uh, in the chronologies, the various opinions of chronology within uh, scholarship. And so I feel like I'm a little bit more uh, uh, versed in the chronology of the of the Last Supper and the and the various different uh, uh, theologies that go with it. Because of that, 
whether or not we have Brant Petrie, Dr. Brant Petrie on, we still haven't asked him. We're, we're still hesitant to uh, to ask him on the show, but we might. Uh, whether we have Brant Petrie on, Dr. Brant Petrie, or whether or not we have my father on again, we will uh, discuss the passion uh, chronology and and whether or not the uh, the Last Supper was, in fact, a Passover meal or not. Okay, let's keep going. Now, we probably won't be able to finish this uh, this article today, which is totally fine. Um, we will go for a little bit longer, and then we'll let uh, we'll let Rob get out of here. And we can either we can pick it up uh, next week if we want to. Or if uh, if we feel like we've, we're beating a dead horse, that's fine too, and we can let uh, people write in and tell us whether or not they want us to keep going. Um, but it's always interesting, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong for our for our listeners. It's always interesting for me to uh, discuss what uh, what the anti missionaries or what uh, mainstream I'm using quote marks for those who can't see me mainstream Judaism is saying against. Uh, against Christianity and against believers in the Messiah Yeshua, because I think that these are important things to talk about, even if they seem basic to some of us, because we've we've you know been in this world for a long time and we've been discussing these things for a long time. For other people who might just be coming to these things, this is not basic, and it's you know these are some of the large questions that are that are uh, that they're facing today. So uh, this this uh, rabbi in this uh, paper goes on. He says mistranslating uh, verses referring to Jesus. Biblical verses can only be understood by studying the original Hebrew text, which reveals many discrepancies in the Christian translation. We've talked about Isaiah 7.14 before, but let's bring it up again. He says, The Christian idea of a virgin birth is derived from the verse in Isaiah 7.14 describing an alma as given birth. The word alma has always meant a young woman, but Christian theologians came centuries later and translated it as virgin. This accords Jesus' birth with the first century pagan idea of mortals being impregnated by gods. This, once again, is simply not the case. I'm sorry. It's wow. Not. Yeah. That, this, this guy either is ignorant or he's being deliberately deceptive here. Isn't the final mem in the—isn't uh, the, uh, the non-final mem used— uh, in this passage in Isaiah seven fourteen, or is it a different passage? There's I think some, it is. Yeah. yeah, I think it's this passage. So there's so the there's for those who might not know, and I'm going to try to explain this without uh, for those who don't who don't know any Hebrew at all. Uh, there there's a letter called a mem in in Hebrew, and uh, it's it's closed. It kind of looks like a like a square circle almost. I don't know a better way to describe it. Um, and then there's a final mem as well, which means that if this letter is used as the final letter on a word, then it changes form, okay? And uh, and becomes a final mem, and it doesn't look anything like a square, a square letter. In fact, uh, yeah. And so um, in this verse, in Isaiah 7.14, the, the regular mem is put as the final letter. It's the only place in the Torah where it's used as... Uh, where a regular mem is used as a final mem instead. Interestingly enough, uh, the the uh, the regular mem is closed all the way around, whereas the final mem is not. And the ra- rabbinic uh, 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 commentary on this has said that the reason that it's closed is because the uh, the woman who gives birth to the Messiah will be a virgin. Her ro- womb will be closed instead of opened. Uh, and so they've said it, that could either be a virgin or, or a, a woman who's beyond the years of, of childbirth. Um, so even in that, this rabbi is not being uh, is not being honest. 
But Alma can also mean virgin, can it not? Yeah. Well, and the big the big thing that he's <laughs> like the wording here, he says, uh, but Christian theologians came centuries later and translated it as virgin. This is not true. This the the Greek translation yeah, that translates Alma as Parthenos precedes <laughs> the first century by at least two hundred years. So and it was uh, the tradition is that it was Jewish priests who translated it into Greek. So this idea that Christians later came and did this is nonsense, disingenuous uh, at best, and totally deceitful uh, at worst. Yeah, the interesting thing that I'm noticing about this article is that all of the, uh, you know, he it doesn't seem as though this rabbi is really putting too much emphasis on um, a good defense. You know, this is uh, this is something that we've seen from some of the anti-missionaries as well. Uh, they they get what uh, they get ammunition that the average Christian who is uh, who is maybe perhaps not as theologically versed as other people or as maybe they even should be. If they're talking to their Jewish friend or, or to an anti-missionary or something like that, these arguments, they bring up these arguments and the person might not know what to say at all. And so, uh, but it does not take uh, much more than a little bit of study and a little bit of looking to realize that the, at least the arguments that this person is, uh, that this rabbi is is putting up against uh, these these foundational Christian doctrines are simply not good arguments. His arguments are uh, fall very flat uh, and are just what we call them, strawman arguments, right? Uh, should we go on? You want to do one more, or, or should we stop there, Rob? Uh, yeah, maybe we, we can start with Isaiah 53 next time, maybe, because that's a... The suffering servant, a, yeah, yeah. That's good. a big topic in and of itself. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and, and Isaiah 53, the, uh, the, the rabbis have done a lot of dancing to to try to uh, get the get their congregants to see this in a, in a completely different light. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. Okay, well then we'll stop there. Um, so please, I, there, there's a couple of things I, I want to make very clear here. Uh, if you think that this is an interesting conversation, we should do more of this conversation. By all means, let us know. You can do that by uh, writing an email to me, chegg at torresource.com. That's C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. The other thing you can do is write us and let us know if there is a specific Jewish theology, uh, and I'm I'm quote marks around Jewish, Jewish theology that you would like us to discuss. Please, by all means, uh, send us an email. Let us know that. We'd be happy to to, uh, look at at, uh, various theologies and give our take on it. And of course, even if you have a different uh, a different thing that you'd like us to talk about, we love getting emails. It really helps uh, this show move forward and move on. Next week, if we uh, if Rob needs to leave again at eleven fifteen, like he does today, then we will once again start probably at nine thirty. Um, so we'll let that be known on uh, on Wednesday morning. Uh, when we send out our email, which is usually around 8.30 or 9, you'll also be able to find it out on our Facebook page. Anything else you want to say before we go, Rob? No, good good show. Yeah, and, good uh, conversation. People were able to make it and join us even starting earlier to, uh, than normal today. 
Yeah, we're we've been very encouraged by a lot of uh, the people who've been writing in uh, and calling in and uh, just all around uh, really good feedback. And we're, we're so thankful for the people who not only listen but take the time to to write us and and to uh, call us and and uh, to chat with us. It's it's really great. And of course, a big thank you to everybody in the chat room. Boy, you guys are great. Uh, you keep a lot of the good conversation going in the chat room, and it's it's nice to see. Sometimes in the for those who aren't able to join us in the chat room. Sometimes uh, the, the, the chat is totally off topic, topic from what we're talking about, and we got some really, really sharp minds in the chat room that are, uh, that are just above and beyond what, what people might think. It's just some, some great conversation going on there. Okay, uh, until next time, don't forget you can uh, get 10% off your order at YeshuaShirts.com. Put in the code TRRADIO. It's not case-sensitive. Uh, also, don't forget to give us a call. Our comment line is 253-465-3205. I'll give it to you again one more time just so you can write it down. It's 253-465-3205. And uh, a big thank you to everyone who does call in. And uh, we will pick this conversation up next week. We will begin with the suffering servant, unless you tell us that you don't want us to. Uh, the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. We'll see what this rabbi has to say about it. But uh, the one thing that we believe is that we are here to glorify the suffering servant, our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.